0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, thank you for for today, um, for our marriages, for uh, for your Word, for its work on our lives, for uh, for your mercy and your grace. Lord, we give you thanks in all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um. Yeah, four-week course, you know, four-week series in marriage. Just trying to get some of the, the primary texts that are out there related to marriage. Um, first week we looked at uh, the, the seminal text, Genesis one and two, the creation story. Um, the Trinity being present right at the beginning. Um, in the beginning, God and the Spirit was hovering, and God spoke. So right there, you have. God as He exists within Himself, God the Father, as we call Him in the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit, and, the, uh, and God who has made flesh, uh, the Word of God, the speaking God, right there at the, the very beginning, the first three verses of, of, of the Bible, God reveals Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we looked at that with the creation of, um, of Adam and Eve, um, given to each other in marriage, given to each other um, by God, Adam, not really taking a rib, but really sort of splitting Adam in half, splitting Adam, a whole side off of himself, um, and then, as it were, giving Adam back to himself, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but yet not himself, very much separate from himself, um, something utterly different of the same kind, but different. And so that mystery which is in the Trinity, God exists, Three persons in one God, one God within three persons. Something like that rhyme or that echo is in our marriage, which uh, is one flesh. Um, hello. Start a little early. Sorry about that. Um, there are texts going around. Here you go, Alice. Um, uh, the profound mystery, which is roughly... Yep, that's kind of what i call this class. Um, uh, profound mystery of exactly how that math works um, that the two shall become one flesh. Uh, so that was the first week. Um, and then chasing Genesis, especially Genesis 2:24 throughout the scripture. it's in Matthew, Mark, 1 Corinthians, and Ephesians. And so it's going to be there all week. Um, we're here again in First Corinthians. that's one of the threads that kind of emerged uh, alongside God being in the center of who He is and his essence as it were. God being a giver, Um, very just centrally important for each of us to remember. Uh, Each of us given to the other, man to woman, woman to man, wife to husband, husband to wife, Um, captured in most of our weddings. Who gives this woman to this man? Um, And then in the place of God, fancy Latin in locus deus, Uh, typically the father could be somebody else you know her mother and I we do this one flesh that's the parable that's enacted in the weddings I highlight that just because I like to go to weddings and I like to see that and like to think about that um, where there's a presentation of uh, of, of, in most of those cases the daughter to the man um, which is very much Eve being given to Adam that's the parable that's captured in most of our wedding services um, so I didn't mean to go through all this that's first week second week we looked at Ephesians 5 um, controversial text for some um, the balm of Gilead for others just letting the word wash over with that central aspect and I captured it on the handout again um, before when it's abused, when it's used wrongly, it's because there's a position of taking, especially the language of um, wives submit to your husbands. And certainly, absolutely, full stop, hear this, that is not for a position of taking. Um, that's when it's used wrongly, when a husband asserts his right and says, you're my wife, you're supposed to submit, do what I want. Um, just ahead, the whole rubric, which of course comes from grace, giving us gratitude, which then inspires a responsive love, love expressing itself, uh, as Paul will say in Galatians. Um, Give thanks in all things um, to God our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another as Christ, um, uh, uh, out of reverence for Christ, out of fear of Christ. And so in that central sense, Giving thanks to God for all things and then laying aside our rights and entitlements each to the other. Recognizing, and this is where we're going to go today, that we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Um, That's going to be the the buzzword here in 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, Submitting to one another. Laying ourselves beneath the other. Look last week in the concussion protocols that a lot of us are hearing about within... um, uh, uh, to a Tungvaloa's concussion and some others said this, you know, hearing the word ataxia uh, uh, as, a, as a medical word just to say a, a loss of, of gross motor coordination, in other words, stumbling around, where mm-hmm. the body in its correct ordering is not arranged well. You can tell something is off because they're slurring of speech or they're going like this or the hands and just, uh, you know, ataxia, which has the same root word. That's why I'm saying all this. The word for submit comes from that same word taxes where we get taxonomy it's out of order and placing ourselves in the right order that none of us are first that's the point in submission um we when you're submitting to authority to an author to somebody else the character in the story never says to the author i come first i'm the one who gets to do me i'm the boss of me as our kids would like to say Um, the bible says not so fast um you're not. In the beginning, God. And then out of that gratitude flows grace. Um, of course. Um, so that's where we were, which brings us to today. Um, uh, let's start here, just because it'd be kind of fun. Um, and this is the, the theme for today is intimacy. So what I'm hoping to do is, is uh, spend a few minutes looking at the text. This is where we've been. Um, looking at the text... That's my. I don't want to give away my, my, uh, my punchline. Um, uh, looking at some text, and then the last 10, 15 minutes or so, I'd call it enrichment. Taking a good marriage and just common sense, um, in sort of legal language, theology language, first use of the law, sort of stuff. If you're following along at home, uh, how to make a good marriage better. Sex is a part of today, to be sure. Phrase I like to use. I don't know who made it up. It wasn't me. Um, sex is a really big deal. It's a huge deal. Um, it's right there at the beginning, before the apple was et, as they say. Remember the two things that were present in in God's creation, in His created order, the way things were ordered. Well, it was be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue. So that's what we call sex and work. Those are good things. The productivity, the bringing forth from creation, um, the, uh, the being given each to the other for mutual fulfillment, for joy, for comfort, for, um, for sex, uh, for the procreation of children, all these things are a part of marriage. Um, uh, and so, one of the first texts, let's look at the Song of Solomon. Interestingly enough, in the Middle Ages, if you wanted to become a doctor of theology, you had to show mastery of the Song of Solomon. Um, I can't remember who it was. I'm making this up. I should have gone back and looked. Somebody, I think it was Aquinas, somebody in that era, I mean, I think it's like 48 volumes uh, of of a commentary on the Song of Solomon, a book that we hardly even sort of pick up. But it was the one, because it had allegorical method of reading scripture um, and, and certainly it's allegory but it's also just you know an erotic love poem um, where it's got three voices I think there's just three you've got a man's voice a woman's voice which a lot of our versions will will help us and it'll say he and she and then it'll have like a chorus in the background so people sort of singing the song as they're you know doing whatever they're doing um, uh, and so it's fun to pick up I do remember this so I went and found it on the internet um, it's kind of funny. Um, As we read it from First Corinth, from what is it? Um, it Says it somewhere, chapters four and seven from the Song of Solomon. Um, He will describe. We're going to read part of chapter seven, uh, the Song of Solomon. It's like from the Wittenberg Door, which was a satirical magazine that I got when I was in my twenties, long before the Onion was the Onion or the Babylon Bee was the Babylon Bee or anything like that. there was something called the Wittenberg Door, which was kind of this underground magazine for Christian ministers, and somehow I got on it, and I was like, this is really great, and this is like, you know, the Song of Solomon for our literalist friends, because here's some of the language from the Song of Solomon. I'm not going to dissect this. You can let your mind wander, and he's like, is it really saying that? And you would say, it's really saying that, Um, and in fact, the Hebrew translated to English, I don't do much Hebrew work, uh, isn't isn't enough. I did go back there. And, and some of, like when he calls it her navel, it's 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 a, it's more expansive than that. Um, I mean, it's just, it's right there, right in the middle of your Bible. So go home and read it if you want. Um, My theory's always been that it's so erotic that they had to turn it into allegories about God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think it's both, because it is so erotic, turn it into allegories about God, about Christ and his bride, God and his bride, the church, which Paul, because we're spending a lot of time with Paul, thank you for that prompt, Ellis, he can't, the church has always, God has put this in our, our ordering, in our taxes, um, that when you think about the husband and the wife and all that's contained therein, our emotional intimacy, our sexual intimacy, other forms of physical intimacy, our cognitive intimacy, our experiential intimacy, these different forms of intimacy. We'll talk about some of this. Um, we think about that with a husband and a wife. And Paul, at least, Peter can't either, can't not think about Christ and his bride, the church. Um, That rhyme is always present. And so in the Song of Solomon, it's also this where the the voice of the the he, the man, um, uh, is Christ's pursuit of us. Even for men, the brides, um, we, the church, the gathered people of God, beneath the Word of God, created by God, are his bride. And he's enamored with us. He's pursuing us in words that almost sound blasphemous to sanitized ears. You're like, "Can we say that? Is God using that language about about me, about the church? And he is, and that's why they wrote so much because it was the allegorical reading. So it's that, but it's also just a uh, a testament to um, to love. Uh, go a little bit further. C.S. Lewis captured this, if you really want to sort of go back. Um, Four Loves, the Four Loves, is what he called his little book. It's a great little book. Um, It's a little, 120 pages, something like that. Four Greek words for love. There were more than that, but he picked the four. Um, Agape, which a lot of us know. Um, That's like 1 Corinthians 13. God is love. Um, that's John. That's also agape. Um, Beloved is agapeos, where it's, you know, beloved. Those Those who have been received in love. Um, but love is patient, love is kind, that's agape, it's unidirectional, it, it, it's not quid pro quo, it's not transactional, it doesn't have sort of a plan for feedback, it's just, I love you, because that's in me to do, so it's just one way love. It doesn't show up very much, except as in a mirror dimly, um, where sometimes for a brief moment, we sometimes love others in something like that. And you have to almost always fall back in that kind of language. So agape filios, which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. A lot of us know that. Um, friendship, which even in a marriage, that's the fuel for a long-term friendship. Seen best as not two lovers who are face-to-face, because that's eros, which is going to be the song of Solomon. The erotic love, the sexual love, um, the, uh, the love... Um, of infatuation that draws people together um, uh, and unites them each to the other um, glued thereupon um, holding fast to each other as the language in the scripture will use it Philios is not face to face but shoulder to shoulder walking together towards a common horizon to a future that they both agree on Which is why some of us who, if you were part of a team or you still are, you were in the military, there's the foxhole sort of friendships and all that, even though they're so diverse and you've got, you know, blacks and whites and Mexicans, that was my childhood growing up in a small town in Texas. The locker room in some ways was a holy place because you had all, you had different economic backgrounds, different colors, races, but we were all going for the same goal. And man, that stuff is intoxicating. I mean, that, Philios, that, that, that terms of philia, there's something to it. We get some of that in work, probably more men than women, um, uh, of a, of a team. We even call that language our work team and going together and, and, and and achieving a goal. That's Philios, um, our Philios, uh, our Philios. Uh, and the other is Storge, which is kind of a, affection, nostalgia, memory, um, the love which we'll have for, for pets, even in a, in a, in a certain sense for our children. Children are kind of this, this crossover between, uh, storge and, um, uh, and agape. Um, but anyway, four loves if you want to do it. So that's still, I don't know why I'm doing. I need to hurry up. Um, Eros, which is here, which is a, definitely a part of marriage, Um, because sex won't make a bad marriage good. It doesn't have that much power, but it absolutely is a part of making a good marriage sing, making a good marriage a great marriage. Um, Put it in the negative, a sexless marriage is going to struggle. It's a part of the order. It's a big deal. Um, So, trying to find a way, also, church needs to talk about this in a much better way than it does. I know we're doing a good job of that with our children, youth, and family, um, much younger age, keeping this as a part of our conversation. Um, uh, So here's just some of the the cadence of the Song of Solomon. Just so you can say, like, yeah, I've read part of it, or um, or at least heard part of it. So how beautiful... Oh, and so, yeah, you can look at this, which is kind of funny, because all the different... Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, and your breasts are like gazelles, and it's like, well, this is, you know... (laughs) the 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 first century bc um or eighth century bc uh ideal a beauty i guess not really how beautiful are your feet in sandals O noble daughter how rounded thighs are like jewels the work of a master hand your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies your two breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. Your flowing locks are like purple. The king is held captive in in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And the woman's voice it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Um, in some ways, it's a beautiful book. And I commend it to you. Um, uh, but moving on. Um, uh, I 'm not going to pick these up, Matthew, um, which also has the parallel right there in mark, um, quoting genesis uh, two twenty four uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and then Jesus in both instances extends it, which we pick up in our weddings uh, our wedding liturgies, so they are no longer two but one where what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, and that joining together the same one of our comfortable words from Matthew 11. Um, Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy. That word joined together is be yoked together, for for I have yoked them together, the same way that he yokes himself to us, so that he may ease our burden. There again is the rhyme between Christ's relationship to us being comforting, strengthening, um, providing relief and one of the purposes of marriage, comfortable. Be, to be comforted, to be strengthened, to provide the resource which is desperately needed, but which is not present within me. Um, very intentional by the Holy Spirit's work as he goes through these. And then in Genesis two as well as Deuteronomy ten, um just the sense of being held fast. Um we're gonna pick that up again in First in Corinthians, where we're gonna spend most of our time. Uh glued or adhered or welded, it's a construction word. Anything which fuses uh, two otherwise disparate um, things and puts them together so they can 't be dissolved um, welded or a strong glue or something where it creates a new a new alloy even it's not even it's not just you know black and white but now it 's this new this new thing that can 't be separated that 's the idea that 's coming here so let 's pick up um, uh in some ways some some difficult verses to to, to uh to work out but, but in other ways very it's almost self explanatory um from first corinthians six. Let me find my notes. Yeah. So here's Paul again. Um Paul a single man. Remember, he, he never married. Um it's important to say and he has the most to say about marriage because he's he uh uh because from the grace of God, which comes in our gratitude for that, giving thanks in all things um, to, God and fa- to God our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we then find that grace and gratitude working itself into every nook and cranny of our lives. Our work, our marriages, um, how we behave with strangers, what we do. Centrally, I think as we hear these verses, um, you can look down to, uh, to verses 19 and 20. Uh, the second half of 19, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. I want to start there. That's absolutely, that's Paul's ethic, if you want to sort of go that way. Which, what's an ethic? Um a ruling principle of how you behave. So whenever you talk about ethics, whether it's workplace ethics or marriage ethics or Christian ethics, you're talking about behavior. Um, Paul's ethic, coming out of gratitude, grace and gratitude as faith then expresses itself in love, um, this love ethic of Paul, always wants to say, you're not your own. So were some of you, like he said earlier in in 1 Corinthians. But now you're not that. You don't belong to yourself. It's a very offensive word that's right here. It's the word of the marketplace, which he also has in Romans, um, where you're not your own. You were bought. doesn't say who the the money was paid to, but as a slave can be purchased. Um, So you also have been bought. You belong to that Lord, that Kyrios, that boss, that man, that woman, that group. And now you belong to me, because I bought you. My paper, your papers belong to me. It really emphasizes the word Christian in that sense. Christian, one who belongs to Christ. I don't belong to myself. Offensive, but you ask, you know, who, who, who do I belong to? Is he good, or is he a cruel master? Um, this is where people like me always insert Bob Dylan. He did us a great service. You know, you got to serve somebody. Um, The question is, so it's not do I serve somebody, but who do I serve? To whom do I belong? Um, I'm either a slave of the devil or I'm a slave of Christ, Romans 6. Uh, That's, the Bible would say, non-negotiable. We don't belong to ourselves. Whose are you? Um, From that, Paul then develops what what some would say this theology of the body. Now, it's both our body, but also more metaphorical, the body of Christ um, centrally when you think about the body um, especially as Paul's going to use it here but elsewhere like in Romans, in 1st Corinthians 15 the resurrection of the body um, the great chapter where we get the sense that all of us uh, will one day uh, spring forth from the grave in some way that we don't know uh, can't quite understand and it also is a profound mystery but it, it, it will be this body that's resurrected and yet, not in a dilapidated state. Uh, it'll be this creation which is renewed, and yet not in a way that's thistles and thorns. Um, uh, Paul's theology of the body, these concrete, not abstract pieces of flesh, bone, and all the, 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 the dirt and the, uh, uh, the dogs, the cats, the plants, the trees, the water, everything that's there in Genesis 1 and 2, it matters. More than any other religion, it holds up the uh, the material, as we should say. And what about the material? What about our bodies? I need to hurry. Um, they don't belong to us. Our bodies are, in that sense, public. And so that's what it's... have that in mind, as he as he as he talks about... Your body is not your own. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your wife. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your husband. Our bodies belong, in a certain sense, in a public, interpersonal way. Again, this is so offensive. Um, I think captured in whatever our kids get this phrase, you know, you're not the boss of me, parentheses, I'm the boss of myself. The prize of autonomy that I am a law unto myself is what that l- word literally literally means. Um, that I exist within myself. I get to choose what happens to me. I get to choose what I eat, what I drink, what I do, what I don't do, what I think, what I don't think. My actions belong to me. My emotions belong to me. Everything that I am belongs to me. My ethic is autonomy. The Bible's going to say, no, that's not true. You don't belong to yourself. So let's read this. The body this interpersonal uh, social public mode of being a christian which doesn't belong to you here goes paul the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the lord and the lord for the body and god raised the lord and he uh, and as and and god raised the lord and will also raise us up by his power do you not know that Paul says that, I think, 12 times in Corinthians. This is his rhetoric. That's the way he's making his point. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Members. Let's back right word down. It's not so much membership, like you're a member of the Advent, or I'm a member of you know the Order of St. Andrew, or whatever it is. Um, think uh, organs and limbs. Like my fingers are members of my body. My, my, my spleen is a member of my body. So it... it You can even say, um, do you not know that your bodies are organs and members of Christ? Uh, Organs and limbs of Christ. Shall they not take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know, and if they say prostitute, it could be just anybody else. Saying prostitute probably because in the context, again, sex is a really big deal, Every religion, and we've done this for thousands of years, have been enamored with sex. And so there's temple prostitutes, the cult of sex, and all uh, every, every, every cult ever made has something sexual with it, right? I mean, it's, it's why? Because there's power in it. There's something that everybody knows. You've got to tap into that if you want to get into transcendence and imminence and all those funny sort of philosophical words. Um, but it's not just a prostitute. I mean, it could be just anybody other than your spouse. Um, uh, or do you not know that he who is joined that's the word glued glued to a prostitute or somebody other becomes one body with her for as it is written here's Genesis the two will become one flesh but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him so isn't that interesting there he is again rhyming even in sexual context uh, this idea of being glued and joined and fused and yoked to the lord in the same way that you are to your spouse in the same way that you might be to somebody else who's not your spouse and all of those three things are right there together one body one flesh one spirit I'm really just going to name that and not pursue it because we don't have time flee from sexual immorality every other sin uh, a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body I want to stop, but I'm not. Um, or, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? He's already said that four chapters ago, three chapters ago. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, ha- whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is, quote, this is, um. You know, all these places where it's a quote, Paul is picking those up to say, This is what you're hearing. Like, you're not the boss of me. You know, that would be written there in the Bible. And then Paul would want to sort of refute that um, in the same way that this was a common phrase out there. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, and Paul wants to say, That's not true. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So let me rush to say that we can't abuse this either, and certainly this has. And so, you you know, give me my rights. Give me my conjugal rights. Um, Give me whatever rights that I have. Remember Paul's ethic? He lays aside his rights. Um, over and over and over in Paul, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, this is by memory, I hope I get this right, Romans, Philippians, at least, those all come to mind. Paul says, you know, I have every right to brag. I have every right to, to assert myself in this way. I have every right not to do this because I have freedom not to do it. And yet I will willingly surrender that right in order to lay myself down beneath somebody else's, quote, yoke in order that I might win some or so that they might be saved uh, or so that the gospel would be preached. Um, That's very much at play here. Like I said last week, anytime we're in this realm, you have to think what's being given and not taken. If you're taking something, you're not doing it. That's not the submission ethic here in Paul. If you have to take sex, if you have to take submission, you have to take respect if you have to take love if you have to take mutuality something's not right something is not right it's given the husband should give to his wife and the wife should give to her husband in what way in the same way as god gives himself to us who loved us and gave himself for us be imitators therefore of god how as beloved children um, following God who gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice unto God. Um, that's where we were last week, the beginning of Ephesians 5. Giving, 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 then places words like this to my ear in a whole different shade. Um, uh, and then I'll stop and let some questions come out. One commentary I, I read here, uh, I, I think it's at least mostly true, if not completely true. It said, Paul is the first one ever to record this. Which isn't a surprise—the Holy Spirit writing, and Paul being the muse, saying now, in the revelation of God after the cross, this sense of mutuality, where both ways there in these verses two through four, um, it's not just you know the the, the woman belongs to the man um, and uh, and the woman's uh, the man should have conjugal rights quote unquote to the woman. He goes both ways. The woman belongs to the man, and the man to the woman. And the woman should give the man conjugal rights, and the man should give the woman her conjugal rights. Give, give, give. Um, The mutuality that's here is brand new. This is seismic in its shifting. Um, Male and female who created them in the image of God, he created them. Equal, but not equivalent. Distinct, uh, and yet one flesh. In united and yet not uniform, all those phrases that we use, uh, the mutuality that's here, of a mutual submission and a mutual giving, forms our ethic, um, our behavior, sexually, um, but also in other forms of intimacy. So let me hit pause because I'm in my bridge to, just some some other pieces. Lots going on here. Lots going on here in First Corinthians. But any thoughts? Deal with the who gives this woman question? You know, in the, in the marriage ceremony, is there a sense that the woman is a gift in a way to the husband? Or is there some kind of special thing to say? About that, yeah, um, I've wondered about that too, Carrie. Um, in the sense of you know, the man is the head, as Christ is the head of the church. I think there's that sense of uh, of being given, um, as Eve was given. To Adam, I think that's there, but the mutuality that I also hear in Paul—you could almost flip this around, and I do when I teach on it and when I hear it. Who gives this woman to this man? I mean, somebody. I guess you could have the the liturgy where you have, you know, both sets of parents walking down and each giving to the other. We don't, Um, but we could. Each giving, each being given away, Um, but then really given away. Because then for us parents, and this is kind of the phase that we're coming into as parents, um, our children we raise so they get out. <laughs> it's both good news, right? Um, so that they will leave us behind. I mean that's the word so that they may leave us, their parents, their mothers, and their fathers, and be united unto their, their wife, to their to their husband, to their spouse, and those two shall become one, and we are left behind, which is a, and I'm sure it was Tim Keller. One said, right there, if you're doing sort of intra-faith dialogue with any, any uh, uh, religion from the East, like Buddhism or Shinto or something else like that, they want to close the Bible and say, well, I can't go here. You know, because it values the family, the extended family, which brings it together. And right away, you're saying that, that this new flesh is supposed to leave the family. You know, an offensive word right at the beginning. Um, We've got to deal with that. So somewhere in the marriage parable... The giving, uh, that's all enacted. That they're also leaving. And that's hard for us sometimes to let our children go. Because we know better than they do, right? (laughs) We do. (laughs) In the sense that we're older, most of the time, we know something that they don't, but that's okay. We let them go. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? polygamous and, mm-hmm. and adulterous and deceptive and all that, you know, it's not easy yeah. for anyone. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Very astute. Somewhere along the way, polygamy, which was sanctioned by God in Genesis and other places, it, it became not the norm up to the time of Christ. Um, and so, third century B.C., you know, Uh, time, you know, second century, first century on the Maccabees and all that stuff. It was man and woman. There wasn't a whole lot of polygamy going on, at least within Judaism. Exactly where that was, I've read on it. I don't think anybody exactly knows. It just kind of whittled down. Um, your question, I will say yes. Fair to say that Christ transformed marriage? Yes. Because Mark, Matthew, Paul, and all of his places now hold it up singularly to say man, woman, woman to man, not polyamorous, not polygamy, not poly, but but the two that become one. So in that sense, when people say, well, we're talking about a biblical description of marriage. Um, what about Solomon and his many wives? Um, I want to say, yes. And let's look all of the bible and not just solomon not to say it's a canon within a canon but also to say yeah there's a canon within the canon and then christ came and he gave the last word and this is the word that we're living on um i I, what a relief i don't have to have 800 wives i get to be married to may may and that's just great that's what i want um and christ said yes that's what i want um so short answer very complicated question but a good one so yeah but yes he transformed marriage um yeah, Ellis, are you going to say something? Okay, let's at least look at this, kind of give you the the piece for it. Um, the enrichment aspect, um, intimacy. Um, Joe Warren used to say, into me, see, it's pretty good. Um, uh, a sense of intimacy, what it's not, it's not a euphemism for sex. You probably picked that up from me already. Um, a lot of pastors, counselors, and others, because they don't want to be offensive, and I, I get that, but we need to... At my comment. Um, coming into the world in the 21st century as we are, we need to call sex, sex. We need to call intimacy, intimacy. Um, i always hold up my hand here. I don't know why. If I'm doing this to Maymay, this is a very intimate sort of behavior. You know, tracing fingers and all that sort of thing. I might do it. When my daughters were two or three, or I traced their face to calm them down or something else like that. A little bit odd if I did that now when they're 20. Because um, <laughs> it's a form of intimacy, right? It's okay for a man and a woman, but that's not sex. It's intimate. And so we need to, we need to call a thing what it is, be able to recognize what is intimacy, and how sex is an aspect when it's done well is, a, is in some ways the supreme aspect of intimacy. And so this is going to be very very quick. Um really just to kind of give you place intimacy always involves the giving and receiving. So there's the verb give just as God gives, so we also give with all the sense of a receipt. Um and what are we giving? Disclosure and reception. So naked and not ashamed, um disclosing our bodies, our souls and our bodies, disclosing secrets, disclosing sins, disclosing things that few other people maybe nobody else knows you know that becomes a very intimate relationship when somebody who is um put up here somewhere i surely did trustworthy um uh when you can be vulnerable what is trust trust breaks down pretty simply just two components time and behavior a certain quality of behavior and a certain quantity of time so, looking at Frank construction, a bridge is trustworthy because time and time and time again, I see cars going over it. So, a certain behavior, it holds up. The cars don't fall off. Time and time, I trust that bridge. But as soon as I'm on there and a, a semi like comes right next to me, I'm like, I'm 40 feet in the air. If this is not good, you know, you know immediately that that behavior is out of place. So, trust, time and behavior. Vulnerability, a little bit more difficult to define, but something about safety and openness, you know, that I'm going to sort of expose or open my underbelly, um, the soft part of me where I can be hurt. Um, uh, And so I'm going to do it because I don't need to defend myself, because I think I'm going to be safe to do this. And so expose a part of me that can be hurt or disappointed. You put those together, trust and vulnerability. You get something like disclosure and reception, or a beautiful phrase, you know, to know and be known, or knowing and being known um, uh, in all of its ways. And then different ways we have intimacy, physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual, intellectual, experiential. We talked some about that. And then just, if you want sort of concrete things, you can take a picture of this. Funny word. It's a great word. It's kind of a newer word I'm hearing in the um, uh, relational literature. Irreducibility. Um, all these work together, um, that how, how, if you want to increase the intimacy in your marriage, four principles, four concepts, irreducibility, curiosity, vulnerability, empathy, working together, irreducible. My wife, your wife, your husband, our spouses, um, I can't reduce them to, thank you very much. Um, they can't be reduced to an algorithm. I don't know everything there is to know about them. I can't reduce them in a reductionistic way. To say, oh, I know, she's never going to change, she's never going to change. You know, over the decades, of course. And so within that, with that sense of irreducibility, being curious. John Gottman and others will say, you know, be cartographers of one another. Um, A cartographer is one who draws a map. Always sort of expanding the borders and wanting to say, you you know, what do you like? What do you don't like? What are your hopes, your dreams, your disappointments, your failures, your... You know map one another with a sense of curiosity sometimes when I'm in a counseling situation I'll say yes put on your your explorers hat and don't think I know everything oh I've been I used to play in this creek I know everything there is about it say so, well do you you know crawl in there and, and explore you know have that that sense of wonder that sense of curiosity and then vulnerabilities we talked about a sense of openness within safety um, Uh, taking the risk and respecting the risk taken by your spouse to be open to the other um, though he or she has the power to hurt or disappoint you and very aware how hard that is for a lot of people for all sorts of really really good reasons Um, and so I don't take that for granted at all the uh, the gift of vulnerability um, which has to be placed within a sense of trust Um, going back to the not taking but giving um, somebody that's been burned Tens of thousands of times in 20 years, why would they ever give? Because it's been taken and taken and taken and taken. You know, some part of them, you know, that's going to take some time. Time and behavior is trust to get over. Um, so there's a lot in vulnerability. And then empathy, which the word literally means, it's a relatively new word, 18th, 19th century, I think. Literally to feel through another. But, you know, expand that. Um you know, Roger Daltrey's Behind Blue Eyes, um, uh, Harper Lee's um, Crawl Around, you know, in his shoes, um, think their thoughts, feel their feelings, see uh, the world, experience the world through another. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's a skill. It can be, it can be learned. Um, some people are better at it more naturally than others, but you can develop that. Both cognitive empathy, as they call it, being able to sort of, I, I bet i bet this is the next thought. And then um, emotional empathy, where he's like, I can understand how you're feeling and why you're feeling what you're feeling. Um, so, four interrelated aspects to increase intimacy um, with our spouses, but you can also play this up in terms of, uh, of how do I relate to God as I come before his word, even this afternoon, if that's what you wanted to do. It's time. May I pray? Mm-hmm. Lord, take this time, uh, humbly offered, and uh, by your power. Uh, increase it, multiply it um, by your gospel's work. Um, uh, humbly and boldly we pray that uh, a harvest would be given 30, 60, or 100-fold. Um, be with us going forth in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.